Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. If this is your first time, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are on part two of a series we kicked off last week called Known. It's a series on community. And uh, we said last week that at the beginning of the year, it's always a good time to kind of do like a resolution sort of series. And you know, you did that. You've made some resolutions. This isn't really one of those resolution series, but it is, we said, a tone series for us, uh, one that's going to set the tone for what we want kind of the rest of the year uh, to look like uh, in a way. And we said that one of the things we want to work on is, in fact, if you made a testament and then you said, uh, I think I'm going to read through the gospels. It just kind of gets lower and lower. That's fine. I get that. I understand that. Um, I think even if you came at it from no background of like a religion or no affiliation or you're not doing it because I'm a Christian, you're just like, I don't know. I, I think I just want to explore my, my faith and whatever. I think it's a great place, to, a great thing to do. I think that you would be struck by Jesus' ability to know and to be known by people. I think that the thing that would stand out to you, I mean, you got the miracles and you've got the, you're gonna have the crucifixion, resurrection. Those things should stand out too. We'll talk about that on Easter. But one of the things that would resonate deeply, I think with us, is his ability to connect with other people that was really, really inspiring. Um, and, and, and just, and, and, and a piece of his story and, and what he did that was just something that, there's no way to miss that sort of thing. And, and typically there's a level of fame and power where um, you get permission to not have to know people, right? Somebody who's so famous, you're like, they don't know, they don't know this, or they don't know the cost of something like this. Or a few years ago, Jessica Simpson didn't know what chicken of the sea was. And she's like, where's, where's this chicken? Remember that? Um, and you're like, that's hilarious that they're so out of touch with reality. But then you kind of give them permission. They're so famous. It's not like they're expected to know everybody. Or there's, or at your workplace, there's people who their, their, you know, um, their paycheck is so, has so many zeros on it. Like it's not really expected for them to know who all, everybody who works here, even though they're the boss and eventually it all leads up to him or her or whatever. Um, there's just an expectation that comes across with that. And so he over and over connected with, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are, but Jesus never played that power card. He never played the fame card. He over and over connected with people beyond that. And so it's an inspiring thing for us. We feel like we said that this, what this is on a Sunday, if you're watching this uh, live in person or perhaps watching it online or on replay or whatever, that what Eastlake is, attempts to be at least, is an interpretive community uh, trying to figure out what the, uh, word, what the way of Jesus looks like uh, in the Tri-Cities in, in, in 2024 and beyond. Uh, what does it mean to live in that way? What does it look like and what does it feel like? And so as an expression of our faith, if Jesus was good at this and he wanted the church to be the hands and the feet of Jesus after him, take what I've done, now go and do it in the rest of the world, then we too cannot find ourselves exempt from the responsibility to know and be known uh, well. Now, if you're not really a Christian and he's like, fun or whatever, and you're, you're kicking the tires of faith and not sure exactly where you land, even if you're not sure where you land in terms of the divinity of Jesus and who he was, then that's that's all fine and good. I still think that this series and this approach can be beneficial to you. Because as we said last week, the world is changing a little bit. As the world gets more automated and the introduction of this idea of AI is taking over everything, there's a quote that we came across that was kind of like, a here, here's why this is important for us. Artificial intelligence is going to do many things for us in the decades ahead and replace humans at many tasks. But the one thing 
it will never be able to do is to create person-to-person connections. If you want to thrive in the age of AI, you better become exceptionally good at connecting with others. Now, the truth of the matter is that this has always been a value that has gotten people uh, well along in life, that people have always been better off for it, uh, having the ability to connect well with others. There are people that you like, that you want to emulate and be like because of their ability to connect with other people. They're attractive in that way. They might not be the smartest person in the room, but they're the most well-connected person uh, in the room. And so there's like, I I need to work on that. And perhaps maybe that was one of your resolutions this year. And if that's the case, then this is a great place to kind of go into. And so therefore, as a result of that, I picked up a book recently called How to Know a Person by a guy named David Brooks. He's an op-ed writer for the New York Times. And uh, in that book, he says this, a skill worth attaining is the ability to see someone else deeply and to make them feel seen, to accurately know another person, to let them feel valued, heard, and understood. So this for us is a four-week excursion into getting to know and to be known better. So that's that's where we're going. That's what you're signing up for if you want to be a part of this series or uh, want to kind of backtrack and catch up on last week or whatever. The art of being uh, and seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. Now, because it's a church... We're also gonna bounce this off of like, you know, the Jesus interactions and the Jesus stories and how he leveraged this. And we see this in his interactions with people. Uh, and last week we looked at a story is that he's the well done of the four. His is the last version to come out. So uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, meaning they, synoptic means they see like with one kind of eye, sin means synthesis of optic scene, seeing things the same way. Their timeline of where Jesus went, who he healed, what he taught is pretty similar. Like you read all of these and you can be like, Luke chapter one matches up with Matthew chapter four or, or you know, all these kind of, th- those two might not match up. But in general, there's a, a general flow to these. And then John's kind of over here, whimsical. His his history of, of where Jesus went and what he did is not really probably true to history, but he's telling a story of his friend. Here's the best thing I remember about Jesus. And the reason that I felt like, or we feel like John had a motivation to write this is because he was closer within the inner circle than either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He was part of the inner inner three, the 12 disciples and the inner three, Peter, James, and John. John is one of these. I think he sits there and goes, this is all well and good about Jesus, but I was a part of intimate conversations that they were not privy for. And so therefore my version of the story is gonna be heartfelt. The humanity of Jesus is gonna come out, uh, the divinity. He's gonna have his his Christology or the study of who he was as, as Christ and his divinity status is raised in John's version of it. Uh, and his emotions that he attaches to the person of Jesus uh, are in there. And so if you were looking for a great place to start reading your Bible this year, yes, the New Testament would be great. But if it's like, yes, but that's still a lot of words. How can I bury that a little bit closer and make it a little bit more tangible and something doable? The Gospel of John is is a is the place that I would say, um, let's start there and we'll go from there. In fact, we make those available on our next steps table. If you're looking at it, if that, if if you know, start of the new year, you want to do something new this year, read through some of the Bible. Five. If you one of those, they're free. It's on your way out. It says free book on it. You can't miss it. Um, so John chapter five, if you picked up that book, this would show up in or a version of the story would show up in it. John chapter five, verses one through six. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool of the depth in which John recognizes 
that my audience is gonna be an outside audience. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of talk with some insider language, John does a great job of kind of walking us through. If you don't know anything about Jerusalem, there's a sheep gate. There's a lot of different gates. One of them comes, it's called the sheep gate because a lot of sheep would go through this gate. Um, and at that gate is a pool. And so he, the, the kind of descriptive nature of it is characteristic of John's writing. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, 38 years. Imagine having a chronic illness that causes you to not be able to do basic human functions for 38 years and what that would do to your human psyche. We'll get to that in a second. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, how long? 38 years. He asked him, do you want to get well? Which is a wild question if you think about it. It's one of those, why are you even asking this question? This feels like the equivalent of a taxi cab driver asking if you're flying somewhere while driving into the airport. And if you get that Dumb and Dumber reference, then you are one of my people. You know what I mean? You headed somewhere, you flying somewhere? How'd you guess? I put two and two things together, I saw your luggage. The best, right? It almost feels insensitive. You can't ask him that. Why would he not want that? After being an invalid for 38 years, by even posing the question, you're casting doubt on his understanding of his basic well-being. When you say this, you're, you, do you want to get well? I mean, how do you properly categorize a question like this, which should be a great thing for you as you're reading through, not just taking in information as you read the Bible, but perhaps then being like, why is this here? What would be some, some that's, a, that's an interactive way of reading something. Why, why would he ask this question? Which is what I wanna spend our time uh, on today. What, what is Jesus getting at when he's posing this question? How do we properly categorize it? Would you prefer to stay sick? Do you even want to get well? Perhaps there's some disability welfare program that you wouldn't qualify for if I healed you. So if I healed you, in place in those times to heal you, although we know that that's not the case, that nothing like that was in place in those times. So perhaps it was a matter of him saying, listen, somebody who's been anything for 38 years to offer the opportunity to change, we know this. Some people don't like change. You've talked to people who hate their job. Every time you talk to them about their job, I hate it. I can't stand it. My boss, my this, my that, and the other thing. You talk to somebody who's worked in the same job for 38 years and all 38 years they've hated it. And you go, why don't you get a new job? Nah, I've already been here 38 years. Might as well stick it out for a few more. But you hate it. I know, but you know, I hate change even more, right? So maybe perhaps that's the question. Do you want to be healed? Because that would change your entire psyche. That would change everything about everything that they know. They only know you as so-and-so the invalid, right? It would change everything about your identity. And are you prepared for something like that. I do think Jesus is challenging his perception of his identity in this story, but I also think, and for the sake of our time together today, Jesus is creatively making space for this man to speak his story or his version of reality. He's getting him to say something, deposit some sort of opinion on where he's at and what it's all about. So John chapter five, verse seven, records the response from this person, this individual, sir, 
I have no one else to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, if you don't know the context of what's happening here, there was a belief that there was a sacred pool where angel's wings would come down and, and go over the water and cause the water to ripple, which meant an angel of the Lord was there. And the first person in the pool is healed. That was their kind of thing. And so the water would ripple and then people would just jump in. Can you imagine a bunch of sick people waiting, waiting, waiting all days, perhaps days at a time, all of a sudden their pool ripples and all of a sudden they just jump in and and this guy can't walk, so what's he doing jumping in? And he's going, there's nobody else to hear. And I know me too, like high school version of me, parks himself around the corner, tossing pebbles in the pool just to see what happens, which is judge me if you want, that's fine. But because I don't have, the reason that I'm still sick after all these times is because no family and friends are willing to come put me in the water when the, when the water ripples. Now, whether or not that story, you know, that, that sort of healing thing takes place or was it was a fable or fairy tale or a, a thing of the time or a legend of the time or whatever, who knows? But, but the concept of him, of Jesus inviting this man to tell him his version of reality, his version of reality is that I'm here because nobody else is willing to care for me and help me to do what I need to do. Verse eight says that then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. I mean, it's a classic Jesus miracle story. They show up kind of in abundance uh, over there. They show up so often, we kind of almost ho-hum over over some of them, even though if we knew this individual or if it was us on the receiving end of that, we would be flabbergasted and blown away and couldn't stop talking about it. I mean, even if we were asked at this moment, what's the big miracle in this story? It's easy to say, well, verse eight and verse nine is the big miracle. And that's true. But there also is in a sense in which a mini miracle within that miracle is that Jesus has time for somebody like this, that Jesus chooses to have an interaction, to be known, to know this man, to hear his version of the story, to give him a chance to tell his side of reality. I oftentimes think it's interesting that Jesus goes to this pool at this time of day with this person, and there's no, there's no record of any other over other people to get to this one, any other invalids in, in the area. It's almost as if he like stepped over other people to get to this one, did his healing, and then walked away. He wasn't going, you, 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 you. It's like this Oprah, everyone healed, we're all healed, everybody go, you know, whatever. There's no, there's no record of that. It's, it's very intentional and it's very like Jesus took time to get to know this one. Like he believed, I wanna do for one what I wish I could do for everybody, but I'm just choosing to do this one. So the mini miracle inside of the miracle is that men of Jesus' status typically don't have any concern about stories like this or from the perspective of this man, people like him don't have anything to do with people like me. If you want to understand uh, people is, is a person with a point of view. He, person with a point of view. And Jesus is looking at this and, and he gives space for this man to be able to tell his version of the story, to get to know this man. Because Jesus would tell his disciples at one point, um, I, in the way that I have loved you, so you must begin to love one another. And in order to love somebody, you need to know about them. You need to get their version of this story. It is possible to care for people without knowing them, but it is not possible to love them without knowing them. You can throw a bunch of money at little organ, you know, funds or organizations that help care for people and people need to be cared for and we need to have those organizations in place. But there's a difference between caring for somebody and loving them. In order to love them, you must know them. Loving always includes care. Care does not always include loving. 
And Jesus would say, if you are gonna be my disciples, the thing that's gonna be the characteristic that people are gonna so closely associate you with me is the way that you love one another. So watch me as I go to this pool and interact with this man and offer him an opportunity to tell me his version of the story, to get to know him, to ask him a question of what is it that you actually want in a book. Every person that you meet is a creative artist who takes the events of life and over time creates a very personal way of seeing the world. Your mind creates a world with beauty and ugliness, excitement, tedium, friends, and enemies, and you live within that construction. People don't see the world with their eyes. They see it with their entire life. If you want to get to know someone, hear their perspective and their version of the story. Now, you've met people and you follow some people on social media who have a very unique take on what reality looks like for them. And you've you've used words like this. It takes some creative artistry to see the world in the way that they do, right? You think that the whole world is against you. That is a creative way of seeing the world. We use it in a negative, (coughs) pejorative sort of way, but you, you, you see this and you go, it's amazing that some people think this way, isn't it? It's wild. If you've ever, ever sat across from people who are, are, are going through a divorce and they're trying to tell you their side of the story of what happened, he said, she said, this kind of thing, there's always somebody who's telling something with the person on the other side of the table going, you know what? It takes some creative artistry to see our relationship the way that you do and my interactions with it. If you've ever been a boss and sat across from somebody uh, and, and done some like evaluations of what's it like to work for me? And they begin to spout off on some things and, and it's, not, it's all, not all, but some of it's negative. And you're like, that's not me. That's not what I said. That's not what I feel like. That's not what I did. And you think, and you maybe don't put words to it, but in the back of your mind, you think it takes real creative artistry to see the world the way that you do. That's how we sometimes uh, think about all of this. And there's a brain science behind this sort of thing. There's a reason that it's not just an opinion on this, but cognitive scientists have a term for this. It's called constructionism, that no one passively takes in reality. Each person actively constructs their own perception of reality. So if you've ever thought, man, that's really interesting that you take such creative ways of, uh, of looking at things, it's not by accident. We are actively constructing our own perception of reality. I'm going to go deep, a little bit deep into some brain science here. I found it to be interesting uh, for me. I think it kind of backs up what Jesus is going to teach practically. And so I, there's going to be some stuff here. I'll try and make it interesting for you. That doesn't mean that there's not an objective reality out there. It just means that we only have subjective access to an objective reality. In poetry or in literature, John Milton would write about it like this. The mind is its own place and in itself, it can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven meaning sometimes it's all about how we interpret where it is that we are. I've seen people be miserable at Disneyland. Have you ever seen that? You're in the happiest place on earth and you'd rather be anywhere else. And then I've seen my wife be miserable at sporting events. You know what I mean? And I'm like, how? Look at this. I say, come to Vegas with me. She's like, I would hate to go there. Why? It's great. There's sports. Anyways, it's all about how we perceive the reality and we construct the, the, re- the reality that we find ourselves living in. So the brain science says this, 
In the act of looking around a room, if I were to say, hey, take a look at around, don't do this because it's kind of awkward in this moment. But if you were to look to the left or the right behind you and in front of you and to kind of take inventory of what's in the room, we think it doesn't feel like we're creating anything. It feels like we're taking in what's objectively out there. We think we open our eyes, light waves flood in, our brain records what we see, kind of like a camera. We take a photo of it and then we begin the interpretation process from there. That's what we think sort of happens. And if I were to ask you, be like, that's... Your senses give you a poor quality, low res snapshot of the world and your brain is then forced to take that and to construct a high definition feature length movie. That's what actually happens. We think we open up, we see this, we go. What actually happens is a lot less than that. Our brain is doing more work than we realize. Kind of like you at your office place. And you're like, I do more than you realize. Your brain is working overtime to interpret reality for you and help make sense of what your existence feels like and looks like. To do that, your visual system is continually asking the questions like, what is this similar to? To what can I compare this to? Last time I was in a situation like this, what did I see next? It feels like I'm in an all-time alert. I'm, my body is worn down. When you stand up on great heights that you're not typically used to, when you go faster than you usually go, your brain, everything's firing. Everything's high because we've never been here before. We have, no, we have no way of comparing this scenario. We don't know what happens next. So we are on constant high alert. And afterwards, we're just debilitated. We're just like tired. We're exhausted because we, our brain usually doesn't work that hard. Our brain usually takes what we usually see and compares it to what we've been used to and then projects things and expectations beyond that. Your mind projects out a series of models of what it expects to see. Then the eyes check in to report back about what they're seeing if, if that matches up with what the mind expected it to see. Seeing is not a passive process of receiving data. It's an active process of prediction and correction, your brain is, actor, is every, all, every minute of the day predicting what comes next and your eyes are correcting or affirming whatever it is that your brain is doing. That's, that's happening. Like you, you're amazing. Like we're amazing. You're like, I don't know, man, I'm like a C student, D's maybe, you know, whatever. Like that's fine in terms of like the grades or whatever, but you are a specimen. Like your brain is an unbelievable vault of information that is constantly working. As a result, Brooks says this, perception is a generative creative act, an action-oriented construction rather than a passive registration of an objective external reality, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? It means that we are actively constructing reality for ourselves, not just taking in, not just receiving, but also creating this process. What we see, what we hear, what we touch, and what we taste and smell are largely simulations of the world, not reactions to it, which makes us think we are really something special. We have something amazing going on. Absolutely. But just to humble us and just to cause, pull us back in, he goes on to say this, the universe is a drab, silent, colorless place. I mean this quite literally. There is no such thing as color and sound in the universe. It's just a bunch of waves and particles. But because we have creative minds, we've perceived sound and music, tastes and smells, color and beauty, awe and wonder, and all that stuff is here in your mind not out there in the universe, which can only lead us to assume and think and say one thing. It takes some creative artistry to see the world the way for me to be pejorative and look at other people and be like, that's true. He's whack, man. That's crazy. It takes some creative artistry for you to think the way that you do. That's true. And it might be true, but it also for you and me, the reality that we live in. It takes, we are creative artists, whether you know it, 
or not. I was uh, con- I, they, they used to live here uh, who sent me a text who said, hey, I came across a podcast, my wife and I, they, they used to live here. They, uh, he used to be a part of the worship team uh, and they moved to Spokane. And so they, they, they Spokane and out of our life, uh, not, not really. And, um, and every once in a while we check in and say, how's things and life and all that kind of stuff. And he, he sent me a text this week and said, I got a podcast I came across and we would love your kind of opinion on it. Now, you probably have a lot of people in your life who go, oh, I saw this show, I saw this movie. You're gonna love it, this podcast. Here, you gotta listen to this. And you do like I do. You filter that into an evaluation of how much you value that person's opinion. And then you decide whether you say, ah, oh, my list of podcasts is long, right? And I don't have any time for that. Or you actually listen to it. And so there are a few friends that when they say you would love this, you believe them. And this is one of them. So John and Daddy Lynn sent this to me and I knew that it would be something that I'd be probably interested in because I like them and they're interesting. So um, the podcast was called uh, How the uh, Apple News in Conversation. Here's a picture of it that I just pulled basically from my iTunes uh, podcast thing. Um, and uh, word of warning, it's, um, you know, it's Apple News. It's like a general secular sort of thing. And it feels very NPR knockoffish. And so if you're like me, NPR has a way of talking and their tempo of their language that just drives me a little bit crazy. It's like they all have this school that you have to go to to learn how to talk, like an, like an NPR person. And we do a, a podcast, and you're going to love it, right? And you're like, oh, my God, stop. It's awful. Um, and so it's a little bit like that. So caution, flow, whatever. Um, but the title was how, And so I was like, okay, first off, I appreciate who sent it to me. Very um, weighted word, right? Evangelical. But basically that word evangel just means good news. So a, a, a church that believes the, the story of Jesus is good news for the world. That's how I interpret evangelical. So in that sense, I identify with it. Now there are a lot of things about the evangelical church I may or may not identify with, but for that piece of it, I'll go, yeah, I'll check that box. And then according to a pastor's son, I'm a pastor's son. I'm checking a lot of boxes here, guys. I'm I'm interested in all of this. And it's a a lot of it about uh, the perspective of how the church has evolved post COVID and now this like weird integration between politics and the church and how we're dealing with this now more than we perhaps ever have before. And I pastored through probably one of the most difficult eras that the church has had since maybe in America, the civil war um, in terms of divisiveness of people. And that was the COVID era. Uh, In fact, my dad pastored for 40 years. And I remember in like the fall of 2020, after we were like kind of picking up some pieces and trying to make sense of what this looks like and how the church looks like on this side of COVID, my dad saying something like, "I, I did this for 40 years. I've never done anything like this. This is like the hardest thing that we've ever had to do. And he was like on the backside of his, uh, of his career. He was like, you know, I I don't want to say going through the motions, but he was about to retire. So yeah, going through the motions a little bit on the end. Right. But um, it's, uh, it it was, it it was, it was tough. It was a very difficult kind of sort of thing. A, A scene in which, in a mode in which now more than ever, there are people pointing fingers at the other, at other people in an us versus them sort of divisiveness saying it takes immense creative, creative artistry for you to see the world the way that you do. It takes immense creative artistry for you to vote in the way that you do, for you to hold a moral standard in the way that you do and vote for a person like that or for policies in that way. That's always been a little bit of a a barrier for for us. I mean, that's just how uh, nature works, but it's become, become more pronounced in this way. And so in this podcast, this guy named Tim Alberta had a dad uh, who pastored a church for 40 years and and uh, uh, and then after and during this scene and, and during COVID and afterwards and with all the politics of everything and and whatever, he says I watched people who had attended my own 
they survive, all of a sudden call it quits and walk away from the only community that they'd ever known. They survive through uh, ups and downs, financial difficulties of the church. They've survived through loss of family members and deaths in the, in the church and community and, and moral failures and all of that. No, nothing broke them in the way that this broke them. And he's like, why is that? What, what, what happened here? How are we in the spot that we've been into? And he says, the two words that have become the most important keywords for the church seem to be under siege. That the perception of the people within the evangelical church, according to him, is that we are now under siege, under attack. That we are constantly on the defensive. That everyone's out to get us, forcing us to be more protective of what we still have more divisive, more us versus them, and more uh, in a survival sort of mindset to kind of operate. And more and more and more are we prone to look at other people who think, vote, look, uh, love differently than us and say, it takes creative artistry for you to operate and think in the way that you do and to do it derisively and, 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 and not to do it out of an act of charity or love, but to do it derogatorily. And I'm processing through this and looking at it and trying to use it as helpful fuel for what we're trying to create and the kind of community that we wanna be and what we wanna be known for in the Tri-Cities and how it, um, I, I don't wanna let any group or, or whatever define us. I want us to be a unique expression of what we feel like God's called us to be. And offering a critique can be appropriate, but it just can't stop there. We become hypocrites through our own judgmentalism. And sometimes what I've seen in terms of this anti-church rhetoric that has come out of this and anything like this is like, oh, the church, they're the, they're the worst or whatever. Uh, and to throw this, in, and even from, and from him, to be fair, at the face of the hope of the world, the church is still good and, and we can do this. We just have a lot of work to do. And it's, it, it, it was great in, in, in that way. My issue with a lot of the times I take against anti, you know, we're just, we're quick to point out the critique of something else is to fail to realize again in our own story. I, I creatively, I creatively use artistic measures to kind of understand the things the way that I do. I'm in the same boat. How, how careful, how, how, uh, how wrong for me to be so sure that I'm in the right and they're definitely in the wrong. That's not to say that there's not some truth that I'm closer to the objective truth than, than they are. But, but man, the grace and the humility that I need to kind of extend during this time, because this is how my brain works outside of the church and outside of faith. This is just how I do life. How much more should that be true? Paul, the, uh, the, uh, the apostle Paul, responsible for writing probably 11 to 13 books in the New Testament of, of the 27 letters that we have, Paul wrote a majority of them, right? He operated as kind of an outside advisor to a bunch of different church plants, starting up in Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and all of these different places, Ephesus too. And, and he writes uh, two letters that we have. He probably wrote more, but we have two collections of them uh, to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a place located right in like this Northern part of, uh, of Greece or, or, or right along the water. There's a it's a, a, a crossroads of commerce for Rome to kind of like the rest of their provinces out there. And so as a result of being a crossroads, a lot of government stuff there, a lot of money there. I don't know if you can imagine a place where a government has a huge presence and there's a lot of money that comes from the government. Have you ever lived in a place like that? Anyway, Rich, okay. Um, and as a result, um, in a, when a city has a lot of money and yet it's far enough away from kind of the like law, then there tends to be kind of a whatever happens, happens. It was a very much a whatever happens in Corinth happens in Corinth and stays in Corinth, uh, Vegas mentality. So 
Uh, imagine a church plant. Imagine a church trying to learn and operate of what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus when anything, when, they, when they're trying to exist in a society where anything sort of goes. Moral standards, sitting in the same room with people with different moral standards and trying to get along. As you can imagine, there's conflict and fighting and infighting. So much of the Corinthian letter is Paul offering correction and how to live with one another and work with one another. Not that you have to be the same people, that we're not trying to just like homogenize everything out and we just pump out people who look and vote and think the same way, but to live with charity with one another and to not allow the things that separate us to define us and grow with, go in this way. And yet to have some sort of standards, like he definitely offers some correction. Like you've allowed this to happen. Guys, that is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. That's not gonna work. So there's some truth in there, but there's also a lot of grace in there. And one of the beautiful expressions of grace shows up in chapter 13 of his first Corinthians letter. It's a chapter that's famous because you've been to weddings before, right? And uh, weddings are so oftentimes associated with love that, that Paul's letter to the Corinthian church about love and how love is... If we're gonna, if we're gonna be with one another, if we're gonna, and it's not romantic love for, for Paul, but like if we're gonna love one another, if we're gonna be around one another, if we're gonna make this thing work, if we're gonna come at this thing from a bunch of different sides of things and be expected to sit in the same room with each other, vote differently than each other outside of the walls of this church, but chase after the way of Jesus together, it's gonna take an immense amount of love that doesn't hold on to ego, that's not driven by, by pride, that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, that is gracious and humble and, 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 and puts other people's needs ahead of my own. I mean, he goes into this beautiful exposition about what love all, all entails. And at the very end, in verse 13 of chapter 13, he wraps it all up, this like poetic expression of what love looks like. And he says, but these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Like these, these things, this is what it all comes down to, man, that we have faith and we have hope. We have faith that, that kind of defines our reality. We have hope that kind of presents us with, a, with an expression of what we long for and love. But the greatest of these is, and you know how this ends, because you've attended a wedding, right? And then at, at this point, that's when the pastor goes, you may now kiss the bride, you know, you exchange the rings and let's go party, right? So that's, that's, this is, this is why we, we, we love it. So we, we know this. But imagine, imagine what, it, what he's not saying here. Imagine Paul in, in, in kind of going along this route and getting to this spot and saying, but the greatest of these is faith. Faith that we be stalwarts of our conviction and not succumb to the pattern from. But that's not what he says is the most important thing. Does he value faith? Does he value the fact that we separate ourselves, that we have some convictions about what we believe? Sure. But when it comes down to it, he says the, mo the greatest, these are things are all great. But the, if, if you have to only hold on to one thing, it's not faith that we become stalwarts of our conviction not to come to the patterns of this world. That's a good thing. Don't make it into the ultimate thing. It's not hope, but the greatest of these is hope. Hope that people see through their darkness and repent of their wicked ways. That's an expression of hope, but that's not the most important thing. The greatest of these is love. The charity to look at others and remember that there's immense creative artistry in the way that they see the world and define their reality. And to know someone is to allow them to space to be able to say that. And again, I think Paul would be the first one to say, listen, their subjective sense of what reality looks like for them may not match up with 
yours. And it may not even, your, your objective view of the truth might be closer to the objective truth. But nevertheless, the charity involved in allowing that space to take place and the humility that you have in your life to be like, I do the same thing. I do it in the way that I live my life and I do it in the way that I operate out of my faith. That it takes some creative artistry for me to see the way that I see things happen. Therefore, is love. Following the footsteps of King Jesus, who said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you stand firm in the faith, the way that you speak out against injustice, the way that you love one another, knowing the way that you operate with the same generosity that comes with the humility, that knowing that it takes even for me, creative artistry to see things the way that I do. The truth is, and I close, close with this, we all have a sickness inside of us that causes us to think that our objective take on the world is the one true objective take. Perhaps Jesus is asking us the same inconvenient question that he asked an invalid in the pool of Bethesda 2,000 years ago. Do you wanna get well? Do you wanna get well? May you and I have the grace to extend the charity to others, the opportunity for them to tell their side of the story, that to experience them as a person. It's only when we do that will we have the ability and the opportunity to love them and truly deeply. We can care for them. We can care for them by doing other things, by making sure that things happen, but we cannot truly love them without knowing them without hearing their version of the story and recognizing with the humility that we have, I do the exact same thing. So may we be a church in this community who lives this out, who does not settle for the divisiveness that comes alongside with how I, it takes creative artistry for you to see it the way that you do. I mean, that's crazy. Ah, I do the same thing. We're all broken. We all need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our prayer uh, is that you would help us navigate this tricky, tricky thing because we are very, very convinced that we, we know what's best, <laughs> that we know uh, what truth is and um, that we have an inside access and we are God's gift to the Tri-Cities for, for what, uh, what truth can look like. That, that's the, oftentimes the invitation, the, things that, the boots that we step into. And I pray that um, when, it, when it comes to our, whether it's just simple interactions, with, with people that we're trying to do life with and, and, and struggling through poor relationships with and can't understand how they could see reality that way. I, I pray that, that, um, that what you're asking us is not to believe necessarily all the things that they believe, um, but to allow them uh, space to believe that and to, to have charity and love and love them in spite of that sometimes and, and allow ourselves, extend uh, to them the same grace that we oftentimes extend to ourselves. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like and the courage to do something about it in your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.